live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Please open your Bible to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. We're going to look at verses 12 to chapter 34, verse 9. Exodus 33, 12 to 34, verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, don't panic. In the pew or the chair right in front of you, we have these pew Bibles, and it's on page 77. All right, page 77 here of the Christian Standard Bible. The context here, as we're getting set to read Exodus 33, 12, in the book of Exodus... In the first part of Exodus, God redeems his people significantly through signs, through ten plagues, and the Passover being the tenth and final one. And then after that, God relates to his people covenantally. He ratifies and opens up the Israelic covenant, the old covenant, the law covenant of Moses. Uh, he, he covenants with Israel, and then, and then they break the covenant in Exodus 32. And the, the end of Exodus is about God residing intimately with his people. So he redeems his people significantly, he relates to them covenantally, and then he resides with them intimately, and yet as he moves in and shows his glory, they make a golden calf. And so they break the covenant, and so Exodus 33 is Moses interceding and asking God to renew the covenant and forgive them and to still go with them on the mission, all right? So we pick that up in Exodus 33, verse 12. So Moses interceding says, Moses said to the Lord, look, you have told me lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name and you have also found favor with me. Now, if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways and I will know you that I may find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. And he replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all other people on the face of the earth. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked for, for you have found favor with me and I know you by name. Then Moses said, please let me see your glory. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name Yahweh, the Lord, before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut two stone tablets like the first one, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be prepared by morning, come up Mount Sinai in the morning, and stand before me on the mountaintop. No one may go up with you. In fact, no one should be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and herds are not to graze in, the, in front of that mountain. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning, and taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. Yahweh passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love and truth. 
maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. Then he said, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us, even though this is a stiff-necked people. Forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. Father, we pray now with our Bibles open that you would show us your glory. We pray that you would continue to speak to us and that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the glory of who you are and that you would transform our hearts. We pray that you would build in us and deposit in us today seeds that build habits of gazing at your glory, of receiving and enjoying your glory, of recognizing and relishing your glory, that we might reflect your glory in this world. None of this is possible without your Holy Spirit, so we ask for his help now to help us see the glory of Christ and in that be changed from one degree of glory to the next. Help us now, we pray. Help the children in the children's class as well to see your glory from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine being at your favorite all-you-can-eat buffet and you can only get one trip. One trip to your favorite, well, actually, not even all-you-can-eat, just whatever restaurant you like. It doesn't have to be an all-you-can-eat restaurant. It could be whatever restaurant you, you, you want, but it's an all-you-can-eat restaurant for that day. You can eat whatever you want, all you, but you have to fit it all on one serving, and you can fit whatever you want there. One trip. You just got to put all of it on a teaspoon. We'd prefer a bigger capacity, wouldn't we? A bigger plate to get more food because it's our favorite place. We'd, we want to consume. We, maybe this is the one time, one of our one time to indulge in our favorite dish and so our favorite dishes. And so we'd want a bigger plate. And yet, given a teaspoon, that would be extremely frustrating. In a very similar way, God has given us a buffet of his glory. It's an all-you-can-eat buffet of his glory. God displays, reveals, and gives you his glory everywhere, and yet we walk around with little teaspoons saying, I want more of God's glory. I want to consume. I want to enjoy more of God's glory. And we're frustrated by the small capacity we have to enjoy that glory. Now, part of that is our humanness, but part of that is our sin and our lack of being equipped to know how to receive and enjoy to glut ourselves on God's glory. That's the only gluttony that would be completely righteous and holy, is to glut yourself on the glory of God. We want to rejoice in God above all other things in our lives. We want to reflect Him in everything we do. Whether we eat or drink, we want to do everything to the glory of God. So we do, deep down, we want to recognize and relish the glory of God so that we might reflect God's glory to others. There is no higher calling and no greater privilege. What is the glory of God, though? There are a lot of different aspects to it, but for our purposes today, let me give you John Piper's definition. The glory of God is the radiance of His holiness, the radiance of His manifold, infinitely worthy, and valuable perfections. Another way of saying it is, it's the outward expression of His invisible excellence. Glory is, is the shining out of the beauty of God within. Just like when you look at the sun, you never actually see the surface of the sun. You see the light that is blazing out 
from the sun. But you're still looking at the sun, but you're not actually seeing the surface of the sun the or the, even the core inside the sun. You're seeing the outward expression of the sun as it shines into your eyeballs. And so in a similar way, the glory of God is the outward expression of his inward excellence, inner excellence. There's more to say about God's glory in Scripture, and we'll, we'll fill it out a little bit more here in our text as we continue to meditate. Our problem, though, is that though we want to enjoy the glory of God, there are other treasures and good things in our lives that distract us from this most important and central goal, seeing and savoring the glory of God. So we have treasures on the one hand that distract us. We got trials on the other hand that lead us to complaining about God's glory when he's actually showing us his glory. So treasures on the one hand distract us. Trials lead us to complaining. But both treasures and trials, what they both do is they actually take our eye off the ball. They, they give us a new preoccupation. We should be preoccupied with the goodness and glory of God all the time. That should be our preoccupation through these treasures and through these trials. And yet these trials and treasures seek, um, often become walls for us, from, walls for us blocking us from seeing God's glory instead of being lenses that actually focus our eyes to see God's glory even clearer. So Moses and this passage here is here to help us as we understand it in its context of the whole Bible. Here's the main goal. The main goal this morning is this. Properly receive, properly receive the glory of God so that you recognize it, relish it, and reflect it to your neighbors and the nations, okay? So we want to properly receive God's glory. If God's glory is everywhere, we want to properly receive the glory of God so that we could recognize it and then relish it, enjoy it, and then in that relishing of God's glory, we are transformed, and then we start to reflect God's glory, or we, we increase our reflection of God's glory to our neighbors and to the nations. There are four aspects, we're gonna, for our outline today, there are four aspects to receiving the glory of God properly, all right? Prepare to, or pray to receive God, pray for God's glory, prepare for God's glory, receive God's glory, and then respond to God's glory, okay? Pray for God's glory, prepare for God's glory, receive God's glory, and then respond to God's glory. So let's look at the first one, pray for God's glory. This is all of chapter 33 or 33, 12 to 23. Pray for God's glory. Look at, look at verse, uh, go, go to verse 12. We notice a few things here that Moses prays for, actually three things here. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says this, Moses said to the Lord, look, now, Moses is in the tent of meeting. He's meeting with, with God outside the camp. The, the pillar of cloud is there. Joshua is right outside the tent. And Moses is praying. And he says to God, look, you have told me lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said you're going to send your angel before us. You said you're not going with us, though. So you haven't let me know who you're going to send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now, if I have indeed found favor with you, God, here's my prayer request. Here's the prayer. The first of three prayer request, please teach me your ways and I will know you so that I may found, find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. So here he's praying for knowledge. He wants to know God's ways, right? Teach me your ways. But why does he pray that? Teach me your ways so that I may find what? Well, it says, teach me your ways and I will know you so that I, so that I may find what? 
favor with you. So he prays for favor. Now, this is strange because he says, if I have found favor with you, teach me your ways so that I may find favor with you. In other words, what is Moses praying for? What does Moses want? More what? More favor. You can never have enough favor of God. It's good to be favored by God, and it's good to want more of God's favor or continued favor from God. If I have found favor from you, God, up to this point, then please teach me your way so that I could continually know you, so that I can keep going forward with your favor, so that I can, I can have more of your favor. And so Moses prays based on current favor that God will teach him so that he can have more favor. But he doesn't only pray for favor. Look at verse 14 through 16. He also prays for God's presence while he's on this mission of leading people from, from Egypt to the promised land. Verse 14. So here's God's response to Moses' first prayer request. So Moses asks for teaching so that he might have favor, verse 14, and God replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Is that a yes or a no? Yes, my favor will go with you because you have not let me know um, who you're gonna go with, who's gonna go with you. Well, God says, I will go with you. Now, in the Hebrew, we don't get what we get in the English here. The you here is singular. Not I will go with y'all, holy nation, Israel. I will go with you, Moses. Remember he's mad at the people? He forgives them. He wanted to blot them all out and just have Moses start, start fresh with Moses. Moses prays no. God says, okay, fine, I won't, but I'm not, going with the, I'm not going with any of you. You guys go without me. Moses prays. Okay, God says, okay, I'll go with you, Moses. Maybe we'll set up that tent outside the camp, but that tabernacle thing that I told you in Exodus 25 to, to follow that example from heaven, scratch that. I'm not going to live with you guys anymore. I'll just meet with you outside. I'll just meet with you outside the, the, um, the camp. So it's a yes, but is that what Moses wants? Just, just personal favor? Read on in verse 15. So look at how Moses prays. If, if your presence does not go, Moses responded to him. Notice how subtle he is. Don't make us go up from here. How will it be known, be known that I and who? That I and your people have found favor with you. Notice he's sneaking the people in there. I found favor with you, your presence with me. How will they know that I and your people have found favor with you, God, unless you go with who? Us. I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. So here Moses' second prayer is he's praying for God's presence, but not just for him personally. He's saying, God, what's the point if you're not going to bring, you know, don't just favor me. If we're your people before the nations of the world, then how will they know that you're favoring us if you don't go with us? So he extends the prayer request here. And so God says in verse 17 that he will do this very thing. He will, he will be present with them. Now, how do we know that God favors us and is present with us today as Christians? We don't know that God favors us and is present with us just because God is a nice God. Some people will say that. That's what they'll be taught in churches, even from the Bible, sadly, sometimes, that God is, just, God is a nice God, and he is. God is a loving God, so God is with you, and God favors you. That's not necessarily true to everyone, right? Does God favor everyone? Is God's covenant blessed favor and presence with everyone? Does God indwell everyone in the world? No. No. Okay, so, it's, so we can't just say, well, God's with us. Yes, I'm going to pray for God's favor. I'm going to pray for God's um, presence. Be, and he's going to answer because he's a nice God. That's not why. 
Do we know that, can we be confident that God is favoring us and present with us because he gave his son to die for the world? God so loved the world, this is John 3, 16, right? He, he, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will, have, will not perish but have everlasting life. Does that mean now that God's presence and favor is with everyone in the world now because he gave his son for the world? Is God's favor and presence with everyone now in the world? Yes or no? No. Okay, well then, how can we be confident that God's presence and favor is with us when we're praying these things? We can be confident because God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in Romans, different than John 3.16, they're both true. In Romans, the us there is Christians, those who are in Christ. How do we, who does God, who's God, who does God favor in the world? Those who are in Christ. Who is God indwelling with his Holy Spirit? Those who are in Christ and not the others. So how do we know God favors us and is present with us? By our union with Christ Jesus. So we pray for God's favor. We pray for God's presence. And here's the main one, the main point of our sermon here on the glory of God. We pray for God's glory. We pray that God would show us his glory. Look at verse 17. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. And so here God says, yes, Moses, I will go with all of you. I will go with the whole nation, with you and them, because I have found favor with you, and I know you by name. Isn't isn't Moses lucky to know that God, I'm lucky, you know, isn't God, isn't Moses blessed to, um, to have God know him by name. Yeah. Yes. Does God know you by name? Does the Bible say that? John 10, 27 and 28, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I call them by name. Jesus knows you, brother. Jesus knows you, sister. He knows you by name. As you pray for favor, as you pray for his presence, you can know just like Moses, God favors you if you are in Christ. And he knows you personally, intimately, by name. And when you know that, you can pray bold prayers like Moses is about to pray. Verse 18. What does Moses pray? Then Moses said, he goes for the home run here, please let me see or please show me your what? Show me your glory. There's the prayer request. Show me your glory. Now, people pray for all kinds of things, right? We, we pray for possessions. We pray for relationships. We pray for physical health. We pray for pleasures. We even pray for ministry fruit, for discipling and great commission prayer requests. But Scripture tells us, not this passage, but Scripture tells us that the greatest pleasure and the highest treasure and the greatest satisfaction and desire and greatest sense of fulfillment is in seeing and savoring the glory of God. God is our ultimate treasure, and he is our um, treasure in all of our other treasures, if they would truly be treasures. So God is our treasure, and we need eyes to see and believe this, but this is true. This is our greatest pleasure and our greatest treasure. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, thank you for being with us this morning. We're grateful for your presence. Uh, we, if you have any questions about Jesus or the Bible, please let us know. We'd love to, to help you in any way. We're glad you're here. Now, you might strongly disagree. God's glory is the greatest treasure, or God is the greatest treasure in the world. That's not true. You might think that um, your desires for power 
is, is, would be your greatest treasure or the desire for influence or the desire for approval where other people would, would affirm you or your desire for comfort and pleasure or your desire for control because your circumstances are kind of crazy right now, but if you could just get control of it, then you'd have your greatest treasure. Now, I just want to challenge you briefly on that and ask you, how are those, how are those treasures working out for you? Have you gotten enough affirmation and approval that you feel satisfied? Have you gotten enough power and influence that you feel content? Do you have enough possessions and comfort and wealth that you're, you're just settled now? You're completely satisfied? Or do you have enough control of your situation that you have no more worries, right? You're completely worry and anxiety free because you have control. It's not working out too well, right? It doesn't work out well for Christians either, just so you know. Um, these treasures by themselves are really, they turn to dust in your hand when you try to hold on to them. So, so here, Moses is praying that, that, that we would see, that he would see the glory of God, and we ought to pray the same thing, that, that we would see the glory of God. Now, in verses 19 to 23, finishing up this chapter here, we have a few thoughts, or a few, we have, we have um, a few different things here about the glory of God to notice about this prayer request. When you say, God, show me your glory, what does God say? Look at verse 19. Let's, let's, look, let's think about a few different things about praying for God's glory. Firstly, in verse 19, he says, I will cause all my what? Goodness to pass in front of you. Okay, Moses prays to see God's glory. God says, I'm going to put my what in front of you? Goodness. Now, Moses doesn't say, wait, wait, God. No, no, I didn't pray for that. I didn't pray for the goodness. I prayed to see your glory. Did you hear me, God? I meant glory, not goodness. Now, what, what, what do we learn from this? That the goodness of God is maybe central to the glory of God or, or the goal of the glory of God? The goodness of God, for God to equate the goodness of God with the glory of God is significant. Show me your glory, and, and God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. God defines his glory as his goodness, or he identifies it with his goodness. This is not insignificant. You know what our greatest problem in our world is when we talk about not seeing the glory of God? Our greatest problem personally is that we minimize, marginalize, and misunderstand the goodness of God. We minimize it. God is not as good as we think he is. We marginalize God's goodness. Yeah, God's good, but what's really good is this. Or we misunderstand the goodness of God. And if the goodness of God is equated with the glory of God and we're missing the goodness of God, then we are falling short of the glory of God. That's what sin is. At the core of sin is a unbelief, it's a disbelief in the goodness of God. Amen. Whenever you sin, that's the core of your sin. The core of sin is unbelief and what you are not believing is the goodness of God. That's what Satan did in the garden with, with Eve, right? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden. Is God really good? He's not good. He's oppressing you. He wants you to eat this. He wants you to not eat this so he could keep you down. At the core, Satan's strategy is God is not good. And at the core of the glory of God is God is good. That's significant. Not only that, let's move on. A second, secondly, in, in terms of this prayer request of seeing God's glory, finishing verse 19, so it's the goodness of God. I will, and then God says, I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. 
So what's Moses' prayer request? Let me, what? Let me see your what? Let me see your glory. And God says, I will proclaim my name. If, if you're going to have seeing, what, what organ do you use for seeing? Your eyes. And God says, I'm going to proclaim. What, what organ do you need for that? Your ears. Moses, again, could say, wait, wait, God, I, I didn't ask to hear something. I wanted to see something. But the glory of God is shown in proclamation, in preaching, in gospelizing. What is, go- what is the gospel? The goodness, the good news, right? In proclaiming the good news, the glory of God centered in his goodness, that's where you see the glory of God. Amen. In proclamation. That's interesting. Show me your glory. I'm going to proclaim my name. All right. What else do we, a third thing here. Third thing here is the name. He's going to proclaim his name. And what is his name there? It says the Lord. I'll proclaim the name the Lord before you. Now, when you see capital L-O-R-D, that's the name Yahweh. That's God's personal name. God's name is not God. God's name is not Lord. God's name is not King. God's name is Yahweh. If you're going to use the Old Testament name, in the New Testament, his name is Jesus. God is Jesus. God is Yahweh. But here, Yahweh, that's God's name. What does that name mean? So, so just like my kids, they don't call me PJ. They call me Dad or Abba. Abba or Dad, that's not my name, but that's my role in their lives. God is not God's name. That's his role in the universe, right? God is not, his name is not Lord. That's the fact that he's the master of everything, Okay, God's personal name. So the glory of God is tied to his name. And his name represents who he is. We'll talk about, we'll define his name later. But that's just something, the third thing to note here. Fourthly, though, um, tied to God's glory, look at verse 19 again. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So a fourth thing here about the prayer for God's glory is we see the sovereign freedom of God. Who will, have God, who will God have compassion on? Whoever he wants to. Who will he have mercy on? Whoever he wants to. That's tied to the goodness and the glory of God, apparently. In Romans 9, Paul picks up this quote, and he basically says that the ultimate reason for God exercising mercy and the ultimate reason for God hardening people is because God is God. Paul Paul picks this up. That's why God has mercy on whom he has mercy. That's why he hardens whom he hardens. Because God is God, and who are we, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Will the pot say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Part of the glory of God is the fact that God is free to ultimately choose, independent of our choices. That's true. And he's still righteous and good. Fifthly, though, Going on, look at verse 20. God adds, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and what? And live. So here we learn, fifthly, that the blazing fullness of God's glory is impossible to see in our fallen state. Until you have glorified bodies, you will not be able to see the glory of God in its fullness. It's impossible to see it and live. You'll see dimmed 
and um, lower expressions of it like Moses is about to see here, but you won't see it in its fullness because you would die in your sinful, sin-cursed body. And then sixthly, God arranges, here's one of the lower ways of glimpsing God's glory, verse 21 through 23. So here's God's solution. All right, you want to see my glory, Moses? Here's the deal, 21. The Lord said, here's a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock, and I will cover you with my, with my what? With my hand. God has a hand. Uh, these are not that God literally has a hand, but this is, um, you know, a way of, of speaking about what God's doing. Um, I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. So God arranges it, okay? Moses, I'm going to put you here in this cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. I'm going to pass by, and as I pass by, you can't see my face, so I put you in here covering your face, your eyes, so you can't see my face, and as I turn my back and I pass by, I'll release my hand, and as I walk away, you can see my back. There, you can see my glory, but only that way, because if, if I showed you my face, you die. All right? So here's Moses' prayer. All that to summarize, this is Moses' prayer, and his prayer is to see God's glory. Praise for God's favor, praise for God's presence, but ultimately it's all to see God's glory. So we too ought to pray to see God's glory. Let's pray with confidence for God's presence, for his favor and his glory to be seen because of Christ. Church family, Christians, this is how you measure the health of a church. One of the measurements of, of the health of a church. You want to know if the church is healthy? Here's one way to check of the many. Look at the prayers of the church. In a dying and declining church, you will find the prayer list dominated by, guess what? Physical needs, health needs. Not that that's bad. We should pray, and we do pray for each other's health. But in a declining and dying church, that will overwhelmingly dominate the prayer list. In a healthier church, they'll pray for those things, but their prayer priorities are shaped by the glory of God. So they start praying to see God's glory in the pain. They start praying, you know, uh, I think uh, Francis prayed last week in our Sunday night uh, when we were talking about someone's on their deathbed or dying, that they would die well, that God would help them if they're going to die, to die well to the glory of God. We live to the glory of God, we die to the glory of God, Romans 15. Amen. Whether we live or we die, we're the Lord's. And so, church family, check yourself and check what you pray for other church members. What prayer requests do you, do you share with other people? And why are those your prayer priorities? Is God's glory and goodness central? You experiencing God's glory in your prayer requests? Or is that assumed? Of course I want to live for God's glory. Of course I want to pray for God's glory. But my real, my real prayer request is for this trial that I'm going in. Pray for the trial, but put God's glory in the center of that trial. And then pray for God's glory besides your trial, Right? Measure the health of the church that way. All right, so properly receive the glory of God so that you recognize and relish God's glory to the point where you reflect it to your neighbors and the nations. So pray for it. Secondly, prepare for it. This is a shorter one. Chapter 34, verses 1 through 4. Prepare for God's glory. How do you prepare for God's glory? Well, what does Moses do to prepare for God's glory? Look at verses 1 through 3. 
The Lord said to Moses, cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be prepared by morning. So you got a, a task. You have a time. Come up Mount Sinai in the morning and stand before me on the mountaintop. So you have a task. You got a time and you got a place. Verse 3, no one may go up with you. In fact, no one should be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and herds are not to graze in front of the mountain. So you got a time, you got a place, you got a task, and then you have a, a secondary, another condition. Now, does Moses listen to these instructions or does he disobey these instructions? Should you listen to these if you want to see the glory of God or should you not listen to these? No, you should listen to them, right? So if you're going to prepare for God's glory, the way you prepare for God's glory is by listening to God's instructions, his specific instructions, not just his general instructions, God's specific instructions. Listen, heed God's instructions, and then look at verse 4. What does Moses do? So he heard the instructions. What does he do with it? Verse 4. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning like he was told, and he took two stone tablets in his hand, and he climbed up Mount Sinai. And here's the key, verse 4, the end of verse 4. Just what? Just as the Lord had commanded him. You want to see God's glory? You're praying to see God's glory? Then you better be prepared to see God's glory. And the way you prepare to see God's glory is by listening to his instructions and then gladly obeying every single one of them. Amen. It's, it's, it's illogical and idiotic to pray to see God's glory while you deliberately disobey him. That makes no sense. God, show me your glory. I want to see your goodness. I want to savor it. I want to be transformed by your glory. And then while you knowingly are disobeying some of his commands and not repenting. And then you get frustrated that God's not showing you his glory. But the problem is not that his glory is not on display. The problem is our eyes. And disobedience covers our eyes. It blurries the eyes. You're not prepared to see God's glory while you justify your disobedience with excuses. Amen. You can't see it. Moses was on time. He wasn't late. God's commands to Moses were not burdensome. They were a joy. If you think God's commands are burdensome, that's a tip-off, that's a blessed tip-off, that your heart is out of tune and you need to ask God to help you see his goodness. And let's confess, all of us have some commands of God that are burdensome to us. And that's where our hearts are out of tune with his goodness. So we pray and ask him to help us see that goodness. Moses wasn't late. He was there bright and early, as you'd expect, ready to see the glory of God. Many of us miss this enthusiasm in seeing the glory of God. Imagine what Moses was like the night before, right? You're going to see God's glory. You're going to see his back the next day. He gives you five instructions, four instructions. Are you paying attention to them? Would you? Would you be excited to see God's glory up on the mountain the next day? Would he wake up late and say, oh, you know, my alarm didn't go off or I didn't get enough rest? No, Moses would have had his three alarms on, you know, set up everywhere, maybe not even able to sleep to make sure he was up on time to get to the mountain to hear God proclaim his name. 
we ought to also be enthusiastic and excited and expecting to hear and see God's glory when we hear his word proclaimed. Moses doesn't compromise. He doesn't try to sneak um, Joshua up the mountain. In, in chapter 33, Joshua is right next to the tent of meeting. And every time, so he's like right there, like Moses is meeting with God in the tent and Joshua's right outside. And then when Moses leaves, Joshua gets to go inside the tent. So Joshua has the VIP pass, the backstage passes. He's not quite Moses, but he has the backstage passes to, to be right around the glory of God. And you can almost imagine Joshua uh, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. Moses, you're going to see his glory? Can I just like sneak up behind a bush, like just hide maybe in one of the bushes and just get, get a peek in to see the glory of God? Can you imagine Moses saying yes to that? No way, right? I mean, Joshua probably wouldn't have asked that because he's also respecting. But uh, Moses, if he's going to completely obey God, there's no one with an inside hookup to disobey God. Well, I'll make a special case because I really like you, Joshua, so therefore I will sin against God in this way. We do that a lot in our lives. We'll make special exceptions in obeying God because of this or that person. But Moses um, wouldn't have done that, and nor, nor should we if we're going to be prepared to see God's glory. I mean, you can't even hide Joshua up there, right? I mean, God would know. Not only that, you'd get killed, right? I mean, that's pretty much suicide to, to just be like, you know what? Yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's see if we could sneak one on God and hide you in a bush. No, that's, that's not happening. So, so here, Moses obeys everything, and we ought to obey everything as well. You'd expect that if the living God were talking to people today, or so, so we should obey God. Moses is excited. And um, we, would, we would think that today, if people could see, like, actually, one of my brothers that we read, read this passage said, you know, if we could see God's glory in this way, then we would obey God all the time. Or if we could see these miracles, then we'd obey. Is that true? No, <laughs> no it's not true. Why? Because, like, if God would speak to me face-to-face -face directly, then we would obey. But they don't. We don't obey. How do we know this? Because God does speak to us directly in His Word. And He's revealed to us all of it, including the fullness of His glory in who? Jesus Christ, and yet, and we even have the Holy Spirit, what? Living in us. We have God's law written on our hearts. Our hearts of stone are gone, and we still disobey God. We still disobey God. Well, I could barely hear God. That's why. Well, God isn't whispering. It's that we are deaf and deafening our ears. That's why the Bible says over and over again, let him who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. Let him who has ears to hear no longer be ignorant. Pay attention to what God is saying and enjoy God in obeying God. That's what James 1 says. You know, receive the implanted word. Don't be quick to anger. Everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's how you receive the implanted word. And be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you're going to see God's glory, you need to prepare to see God's glory through obedience. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be what? Happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Without obedience, your happiness is cut off because you are not able to see and savor the glory of God. Amen. All right, so we pray to see God's glory. We prepare to see God's glory. And then thirdly here, we receive God's glory. We receive it. Now look at Moses here in verse 5 of chapter 34. The Lord, Yahweh, comes down in a cloud. So here we're going to see Moses. How does Moses, 
Now, I want you to see these two points. This is very important practically for you. How does Moses receive God's glory? Moses does two things. He's going to see the glory, and he's going to hear the glory. And you need both. You need seeing and hearing. Not just hearing, not just seeing, but both, seeing and hearing. So so first of all, Moses sees the glory. Look at verse 5 and 6. So here's Moses on the mountain. The Lord came down in a cloud. So God is there. It's exciting, right? God comes in a cloud. You can see the cloud. And then it says he stood with him there. He stood with him there. And then verse 6, the Lord passed in front of him. So here God comes down. He is present there in a visible cloud. He's standing with Moses, and he's passing in front of Moses. Moses is seeing something, but he's not only seeing the glory of God, he's also, because it says in verse 5, he proclaimed his name. In verse 6, it says he proclaimed. So he doesn't only see God's glory, he hears God's glory. And what is God's glory? What does God proclaim? What's God's message in verse 5? In verse 5, verse 5. It is his goodness, but he proclaimed what? His name. And what is his name? Yahweh. So he proclaims his name Yahweh. And as he goes to proclaim it, he proclaims two aspects to it. Look at verse 6 and 7. Yahweh, Yahweh, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Is that all good news or bad news? Good news. Compassion, mercy, forgiveness from your sins? Does anyone need that? Anyone want that? God is abounding in that. But then there's another side to it, and they're both two sides of the same coin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the wrath, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So God is righteous in his judgment, and he is gracious in his salvation. He is righteous in his judgment, and he is gracious in his salvation. Let's look at this proclamation just briefly. There are several characteristics here of his proclamation, and then there's three actions. So God, God describes himself in six characteristics, and then he gives three actions. Look at, look at these things briefly. Go to verse 6. First, Yahweh. So the first part of his proclamation is he is Yahweh. A God. So he's Yahweh and he's God. I told you Yahweh is God's personal name. In Exodus 3, 14 and 15, Moses is talking to God at the burning bush. Remember that? And at the burning bush, God says, um, Moses says, well, what is your name? If, if they're going to ask me, what is your name, Israel, what, what do I tell them? And then he says, I am who I am, or I am that I am. This is Exodus 3, 14 and 15 and 16. I am who I am. And then he says, Yahweh is my name the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What do we learn from this? Does, does I am that I am mean that God is eternal? Yeah, I mean, God is eternal. Does his name signify that? Sure, probably. Um, does this mean that God, he says, I am that I am. That means he's independent from everyone. He is, we are because he is. He is because of nobody. He is because he is. It's just him by himself. He is self-sufficient and independent. Is that what his name means? Probably. That might be included in the meaning. But certainly, the glory of this name is that God is the God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And why is that important for us cursed sinners? 
Because what did God promise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What did he promise Abraham? That in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be what? Blessed. Blessed because we are cursed in our sins. So the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God who is faithful to bless all ethnic people groups through Abraham's offspring and the nation. That's God's promise. And God says, I haven't forgot my promise. I am Yahweh, the God who keeps his covenant, the God of blessing, the God who will bless, the God of goodness, right? If the goodness is his glory, my promise of blessing to cursed people. So that's first of all. So you get his name. Secondly, though, look at, look at this proclamation, verse 6. He is a compassionate God. What does compassionate mean? Or merciful, some translations say. Compassionate or merciful. The, the Hebrew word has a similar root to the word womb, which gives the picture of a mother's care for her baby in the womb even before the baby is born. And we have a few of those in our church. It signifies warm compassion, a compassion that goes the second mile. A parent who will do anything for his child, that kind of compassion. That's what God has towards his people. So compassionate, what's the next word? Yahweh, Yahweh, a God who is compassionate and gracious. What does gracious mean? That he has favor on people who don't deserve his favor. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. He favors some of his, he favors some people. He favors his people. This is often coupled with merciful, merciful and gracious. Motherly care for those he favors who don't deserve his favor. Grace is not for the, merely for the undeserving. It is for the ill-deserving. God's grace is not merely for the undeserving, but for the ill-deserving. So what's next? So God is name, merciful or compassionate, gracious. What's the next one? Slow to what? Slow to anger. Now us, what are we like when we get tempted with frustrations? We are quick to anger, right? God is the opposite. We are quick to anger naturally because we're hurt and we want to restore order in terms of what we think should be orderly, so we get angry. But sometimes our anger, oftentimes our anger is sinful, right? God's anger is never sinful because he's slow to anger. His anger is always righteous and perfectly calculated and always appropriate to the crime, to the situation. God doesn't needlessly flare up in anger with an outburst of frustration as if things are suddenly out of his control or taking him by surprise. And because of that, he's patient He's slow to anger. It doesn't mean God is okay with sin. It does not mean that God will not punish sin, but he is slow to anger by his very nature. Not only is he slow to anger, next in verse 6, he's abounding in two things. What are they? Faithful love and what? Truth. Faithful love and truth. What do we mean by faithful love and truth? If we're saying he's abounding in faithful love, that means that God's favor is personal. There's a personal commitment. There's a relational bond of love towards those he favors. This is all the goodness of God, right? God, based on his covenant with Abraham, loves you. He loves his people. It's a love because of the bond of relationship. It is steadfast or faithful love because people will test God's love. God's people will test God's love, won't they? Have you tried God's love with your sins? Have you you tested God's love? Would God have, in some ways, just based on your own personal track record, good reason to abandon you and to give up on you? And yet God's love is steadfast or faithful. It goes through all of our 
sins and failures, and it continues to go after us. Sally Lloyd-Jones says it this way, it is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's how she, what she calls it in, the, in her children's book, the Jesus Storybook Bible. A never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And that's true. That's God's covenant love for his people. And not only that, abounding in faithful love and what? Truth. That means God never what? Lies. Whatever God says, God is faithful to keep what he said. His, his promises are true. He will do what he can. God never lies. God is completely trustworthy. Okay, so what do we have about God? What do we learn about God? Let's just put these six together. He's the covenant God who keeps his covenant blessing through Abraham. He's gracious, so he favors the ill-deserved. Not only does he favor the ill-deserved, he's compassionate like a parent. He's slow to anger and he's patient with us even though we try his anger. He's faithful in his love towards us and he's warm in his love towards us. And he is completely trustworthy. He never lies. Isn't God good? That's the goodness of God that he's proclaiming there. And it leads to three actions of his goodness. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 has three actions. Maintaining faithful love 2,000 generations. So he maintains it. He keeps it. He doesn't let go. Secondly, what does he do? He forgives what? Iniquity, rebellion, and sin. You're saying, aren't those all the same thing? Ah, oh, they have different shades of meaning. But um, putting three together is just really helpful for us sinners, right? Any kind of sin you do, God forgives. God can forgive and does forgive if you're in Christ. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then lastly here, but he does not what? He does not leave the guilty what? Unpunished. Or another way to say it is, he does, the ESV says, he does not clear the guilty. God forgives the guilty, but he does not clear the guilty. Or he does not leave them unpunished. Now, before we talk about how that can be, which is a valid question to ask, let me just let me give you some application here because this is important. How did Moses see how did Moses receive God's glory? Two things. He what? He saw it and he heard it. So how are you going to God's not putting you up on a mountain. You're not going to Mount Sinai tomorrow. How are you going to see God's glory if this really is a buffet and there's a buffet all around you? How can you see it? The answer is, or how do you receive it? Here's how you receive it. You, you hear and you interpret what you hear by what you see, or you interpret what you see by what you hear. So in other words, think of it this way. God's word is like glasses, my vision is so bad. I can't see anyone's faces right now without these glasses on. So um, God's word is like glasses. You put it on, so you hear God's word, and God's, God's telling you what the world looks like, and you put this on, and now you're able to see. So now you can see things, and then you can interpret what you're seeing by what you have heard, by the glasses you have just put on. If you try to see without hearing, you are blind. Your vision is just too blurry. You can't see anything. But if you put glasses on, but you don't open your eyes and apply the Bible to what you're actually seeing in the world, you're not going to see any glory. Do you see how you need both? The Bible alone is not sufficient in that regard. The Bible is your glasses, but you need to actually take the glasses and actually look at your world and look at your church and look at your surroundings right now by what you read and hear and see in the scriptures. So Paul is saying, this is why Paul said in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. He wants you to see with spiritual eyes. So how do you see with what you hear? I have a passage here that I'm not going to go to for the sake of time, but look at John 14, 22 to 26 for homework. Jesus basically says, you need to hear and you need to see and you need to obey and do what I tell you. And when you're, when you're 
listening to God's word, okay? You're listening to God's word. You're putting it on and you're seeing the world. Now, sometimes your lenses can be blurry still. I mean, not blurry, but they could be dirty, okay? So if, let me just follow this analogy. If you take God's word, you put it on, that is how you see the world, but your disobedience would be like dirt on the glasses. So to prepare to see God's glory, what do you need to do? Obey, right? So to clean the glasses, you obey. So you get the word of God, you put it on, and as you prepare to see God's glory by obeying his word, you're able to now look, at, look out into the world and then see his glory. Let me give you one example of how to do that. When I was praying earlier, the prayer of confession, there was a little kid making a lot of noise in here, right? I don't know if you heard it. I heard it. There's a kid here making a lot of noise in the back. Did you see the glory of God in that? There was glory there. So, well, what does God say? Let's, take, let's put on the glass first. What does God say? God says that children are a blessing, right? God tells us to raise our children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. We have, there's a lot of people in this room who did not grow up in a Christian home, right? There's a lot of people here who didn't grow up hearing the gospel. Yet this kid who's making noise in the back during the prayer of confession is growing up in a place where they get to what? Hear the what? Gospel and see the body of Christ. God is being gracious and compassionate and good to that child who's making noise. He is showing the rest of his church the glory of his goodness in a child making noise during the prayer of confession. And yet if we complain, why is that child making noise? Why isn't the parent quieting him? What are we doing? Are we obeying or disobeying God? We're disobeying, we're complaining, and when you complain, guess what happens to your glasses? What do you have? Dirt, and you can't see God's glory during the kid making noise during prayer of confession because you're disobeying, you're complaining. But if you say, no, I'm gonna, God says give thanks in what? Everything. Everything. So God, thank you for the child making noise. I don't know why I'm thankful that the child's making noise, but you tell me to, make, to give thanks for the child making noise, so I'm gonna thank you for the child making noise. God, why should I thank you for the child making noise? Then you start thinking with the glasses you've been given from the word about the situation. What are you seeing now? Glory. You're seeing the glory of God during a prayer of confession while a kid is making noise. And then what do you get to do? That teaspoon becomes a little bit bigger. And you get to recognize and then relish the goodness of God with a kid making noise in the back during a prayer of confession. God's glory is everywhere. It's everywhere. It's the person singing out of tune beside you while we're singing praise songs. It's the glory of God there. Do you see it? Do you receive that? Can you hear God's word and let it, and then, and use your eyes to see with obedience rather than blurring the glasses with your disobedience? Brothers and sisters, you don't need a teaspoon. You need not walk around with a teaspoon. God wants to give you a huge tray that is ever-increasing to see God's glory everywhere. But if you don't hear his word and then look out in obedience from what he's given you, you won't see. And you won't be transformed. You won't reflect God's glory to other people. But if you see and hear and obey what you know, God might open your eyes just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And we call that growth. We call that Christian maturity or a maturing Christian. All right, well, where do you see the, God, the glory of God and his goodness most spectacularly? If God showed his glory in the Garden of Eden, now he shows it to, to Moses here on the, on, the, on the mountain, then he's gonna show it in the temple and the tabernacle, but then the glory's gonna go away because of their sin. When does the glory come back? In John chapter one. And the word became flesh and what? 
dwelt among us, and then it says after that, and we have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. That's what it says here, full of love and truth. John is telling us in John chapter 1 that what Moses was ultimately pointing to was the glory of who? Jesus. Where do you see the grace of God and the righteousness of God meet? In who? Where does God forgive sinners and not clear sinners at the same time? The cross. God, did God punish sinners? Does God punish sinners in hell? Yes or no? Yes, but what about the sinners who don't go to hell? What about the sinners that go to heaven? Does God punish them too? Are they punished as well? Yes. Where? On the cross. And Romans 6 says that we were united to Christ. When Christ died, who else died with him? We died with him. God never clears the guilty. He always punishes every sinner and every sin. But in one sense, we don't absorb the punishment ourselves because we're united to Christ and he absorbs it for us. And so God is gracious and clears the guilty and punishes the guilty at the same time only through the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you want to see the blazing center and the apex of the glory of God, you look to Jesus Christ and his cross and resurrection. You behold the wondrous mystery that we just sang about here, where it's about his life, death, resurrection, incarnation, it's all here. You look here, and this is the blazing center of God's glory. So if you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to look to Jesus. When you see Christ as the center of God's glory, then you look at a child who's crying in the back, and instead of being distracted, you're thinking about the death of Christ that changes my heart to hear that cry and see and worship God. In that moment, you think about God's Christ's death that purchases that child's opportunity to hear the gospel. All of this is about the cross. Every glimpse you see of any goodness anywhere else, it's all cross-centered glory. Amen. It's all Christ-centered glory. And you need to do the hard work when you put the glasses on by connecting all the goodnesses that you enjoy in this world, connect it all to Christ and his cross, and you will see the glory of God. If you're not a Christian, repent from your sins and trust in Christ's death, and God will forgive you too. He will clear you by not clearing you um, on your own, but by uniting you to Jesus, punishing Jesus, or having already punished Jesus on the cross, he will clear you by your union with Christ. If you will turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, you'll see the glory of God. So lastly, and this is a short one, but last two verses, what's the response? If you receive the glory of God by seeing and hearing, how do you respond to it? In verse eight and nine, Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and what? Worshiped. That's how you respond. You kneel humbly. You're ready to obey. You worship. And then verse 9, then he said, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord. Again, another thing, if I found favor. You just, you just saw God's glory. And Moses is saying, if I found favor um, with you because I'm still a sinner and you're holy. Even though this is a stiff-necked people, what's his prayer request? Forgive what? Our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. When you see the glory of God, it leads to two things. It leads to worship in faith and repentance from sin. That's how you respond to God's glory every time. Not just for non-Christians becoming Christian by faith and repentance. This is how you respond. Trusting God and seeing his worth by faith and worshiping him humbly and being willing to trust and obey him, whatever he says. And at the same time, asking God to forgive you and your church family for their sins. He's not just asking for his own forgiveness here. He's praying for his people. And so you pray for your people as well. God, 
we worship you. Forgive us for our sins. And that is how we respond to God's glory. And so, there's another way to say this is, let me just quote this lyric and then we'll close. Come thou fount. Here's a prayer. Here's Moses' prayer in song. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my what? Heart to sing thy grace. So, clear up the eyes. Tune my heart um, to praise. Streams of mercy never what? Never ending, never ceasing. The, the mercy is everywhere. It's flowing everywhere. It's never stopping. God's glory is always flowing. His goodness is always flowing. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for what? Songs of what? Loudest praise, worship. That's how we respond. We worship God by, the, by seeing the streams of mercy that never cease. So properly receive the glory of God so that you recognize, relish, and reflect God's glory to the nations. How do we do it? We pray, we prepare, we receive, and we respond. Brothers and sisters, God has sent you. Like Moses, God sent Moses to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. God has sent you to your neighbors and to the nations to gospelize them and disciple them, to bring them out of darkness into God's light. In other words, brothers and sisters, we are mediators and intercessors like Moses. Did you know that? Yet, like the disobedient Israelites, because of our idolatry, when we try to intercede and mediate and disciple others, we have failed. Have you failed as a discipler? Have you failed as an evangelist? Have you failed as a mediator and an intercessor? Or have you perfectly interceded for your neighbors and friends? We have failed. We are failed Moseses. We're supposed to be like Moses, and we're failed Moseses. We have not reflected God's glory, and so what do we deserve? We deserve to be cut off from His glory because we have not mediated well. But there's someone who did. Jesus Christ prayed for God's glory. Jesus Christ obeyed God. Jesus Christ displayed God's glory. Jesus Christ responded to God's glory. And yet, even with Jesus perfectly doing that, he was cut off from God's glory on the cross so that we failed mediators will never be cut off from the, from the glory of God. We will be restored to the glory of God because our mediator was cut off from God's glory so that we would never be cut off and therefore we are now able to mediate God's glory to other people as we point to Jesus. Jesus is the intercessor we need because we, were, we are failed intercessors. Jesus is the mediator we need because we are failed mediators. And so now we point to him. So brothers and sisters, recognize God's glory in larger teaspoon. God is handing out ever-expanding trays to fill, up, fill you up on his glory again and again. If you will enlarge your teaspoon, if you'll receive and recognize God's glory, if you don't do this, you'll miss out on the glory all around you. You'll fail to be powerfully transformed by that glory, and you will minimize and obscure God's glory to others. But if you do recognize and relish God's glory, you will enlarge your recognition of it. You'll relish it more and more in ways that transform you and then you will reflect your glory to our church and through our church family, to our neighbors and to the nations. And so we close with a prayer, which is what we sing, speak, O Lord. If God's going to proclaim his glory, here's the prayer. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord. Reveal your glory to your praying, preparing, receiving, and responding people until your church is built 
and the earth is filled with your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.